So Hebrews chapter 13, if you're here for the first time or joining us online, uh, we've been working through this book for just a little over a year, and we are coming into the last few passages. Uh, if you don't have a Bible of your own, uh, help yourself to one that's in front of you there in the rack, and if you don't own a Bible, then uh, we'd love for you to take that as a gift. want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. If you spend much time on social media, like Instagram or Facebook, that's not a recommendation, by the way, um, but if you do, you have probably encountered a certain kind of post that has become pretty popular in recent years, and it goes by the name Deconversion Story. A deconversion story. And typically, it's written by someone who grew up in a Christian home, grew up in a church, and made a profession of faith, lived as a Christian for several years, or tried to, maybe even became a church leader or member of a prominent Christian band. And now they have decided that they're no longer going to identify as a Christian, but they're now going to go a different direction. And for those of us who still do identify as Christians and who believe that everyone needs to hear the good news about Jesus and enter into a personal faith relationship with him, these stories are, are heartbreaking they're very troubling. Um, we, we can read the reasons people give for the decision that they're making, their decision to walk away, and they can be really hard to hear, especially if there's a story of mistreatment at the hands of some wearing the label Christian. And our hearts just can ache, and, and we can sympathize with at least some of what they're saying, and we can just wonder, what in the world? What in the world is going on? What is up with this being a trend? What is with this new trend of people walking away from faith in Jesus? But the thing is, it really isn't a new trend. Well, the social media part of it is new. But ever since the time of Jesus... There have been people who once identified with him and with his people who later decided at some point to walk away. And we see this in the pages of Scripture, actually, in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, chapter 6. After Jesus has just said something that many people did not like, it says in verse 66, from this time many of his disciples, followers, turned back, and no longer followed him. The Apostle John says in 1 John 2.19, he's talking about this same phenomenon. He said, they went out from us, but they didn't really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. And then, of course, the most notorious example of all is Judas. Judas Iscariot, who was part of the inner circle of Jesus. He's part of the, those 12 guys who were with him 
24-7 for over three years. And he not only walked out on Jesus, he sold him out. Now I want to be very clear. I am not implying in any way that somebody who posts a deconversion story is like Judas. That's not my point. My only point is this. This phenomenon of, of people who once followed Jesus later on deciding to walk away, that's not a new phenomenon. It's been going on for 2,000 years. And actually, this book that we're studying, the book of Hebrews, is in a very real sense written because of this very phenomenon. It is written to prevent a deconversion story because the first recipients of this There were those among them who identified with Jesus, but now are seriously considering walking away. And we've talked about this before, but these were Jewish people who had responded positively to the message that Jesus was the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, that in him all of God's promises find their fulfillment, and they embraced that initially. But since most of their countrymen did not accept that message, they were feeling this intense social pressure to walk away, to stop hanging around Christians, to quit talking about Jesus, and to just go back to their previous way of life, go back to the previous Jewish rituals and and customs. And this book was written to them to say, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't turn away from Jesus. And so this book gives us reason after reason for why Jesus is the one who fulfills all of the Old Testament promises and rituals and how he alone can make us right with God through his once for all ultimate sacrifice, perfect sacrifice for all sin. He is God's ultimate and final word to humanity. And if you walk away from him, you are walking away from your only hope to know God and be right with him. And experience eternal joy. And here in chapter 13, the writer is reminding us of several key truths he's already talked about, but he wants us to keep in mind so we don't walk away. Because here's the thing. I always hate to say it, but it's the truth. The temptation to walk away can happen to anyone. Anyone in this room, it could happen to. Because we are broken people, and we live in a broken world, and life can be very hard. Until Jesus returns, as he promised he will, and rids the world of all evil and all suffering, it can be very hard. And maybe, maybe in your life, It feels especially hard. And Jesus isn't doing the things that you want him to do. 
the things that you've asked him again and again to do. Or maybe you've experienced big hurt at the hands of some who call themselves Christians. Or maybe you're feeling the pressure to walk away because you want the approval of some people who do not approve of Jesus and his ways. Well, in light of everything this book is telling us, if you are weighing Christianity in the balance and trying to decide if you're in or out, make sure you're considering the real thing. Because there are a lot of distortions out there. The writer of Hebrews wants to make sure that we are dealing with the real Jesus. Not some imitation Jesus, not some phony, watered-down Jesus, the real Jesus. The one who was heard and seen by eyewitnesses, seen alive again after his death. Not some politically correct, socially acceptable Jesus. Make sure you're dealing with the real one. And this passage helps bring that issue into focus. So I'm going to read now in Hebrews 13, beginning at verse 7. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle, he's talking about the Levitical priests of the Old Covenant, those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. Talk about sin offerings in a little bit. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and share with others. For which, with such sacrifices, God is pleased. What I want to do with this passage is I want to point out six crucial Christian claims. Six crucial claims by this writer and really by the other New Testament writers about Jesus and what it means to believe in him. Now, I want to be clear what I'm trying to do. I'm not going to try to prove these six claims. I would love to talk about each one of them 
and all the reasons for believing that that's a, a true claim and why it's sensible and right and rational to believe it, but I, I'm barely going to have time to just point to them. But the reason I want to point to them is because these are foundational claims of the true Christianity, authentic Christianity, and anybody who actually wants to weigh that in the balance, who actually wants to consider authentic Christianity, must take these six claims seriously and decide what to do with them. So here's the first one. Claim number one, God has spoken. God has spoken. This is the foundational claim on which all of the other claims ultimately depend. And the claim is this, that in the writings of the Old Testament and in the person of Jesus Christ and in the writings of his chosen representatives, God has made himself known in human language. Now that's an amazing claim. And it's all through the Bible from beginning to end. Verse 7 here says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Who are these leaders? Well, it's talking about the messengers who first brought to them the good news of Jesus. His main point here, if you read it, is remember those guys, remember how they lived, consider the outcome of their lives. So it's kind of just in passing that he says that their message was the word of God. But that is typical. We see that all through the New Testament, that the message of Jesus is a message from God. It's the message from God. In fact, that's where this book began, back in chapter 1, verse 1. In case you don't remember, since that was over a year ago, look at it. Hebrews 1.1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And see, that's the reason then why those first messengers left their homes and why they risked their lives to take this message of Jesus everywhere. What? Why did they do that? Because they were absolutely convinced that it wasn't their message. They didn't make it up. They didn't dream it up in some dark, smoke-filled room. They got it from God, and God told them to tell everyone about it. And he's told us the same thing. I want you to be sure you see how serious this is. This is so serious. If the message about Jesus is just a human opinion, if it's just human insight, human philosophy, well, then whether or not you accept it or reject it is of little consequence. doesn't matter. But if it really is the message from God, then what you decide to do with it is the most important decision you will ever make. So that's claim one. God has spoken. Claim two, believing 
God's word, that is believing what he has spoken, leads you to trust God's son. Believing God's word leads you or will lead you to trust God's son. So the point of the message that these first leaders brought to them, the point of this word from God is to invite you, to encourage you, to challenge you to put your personal confidence in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of the message. So verse 7 Consider the outcome of their way of life, these first messengers, this first group of apostles and so on. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, isn't that interesting? Look what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, hey, consider the way of life and imitate their way of life. Consider what they did, do what they did. Consider how they lived, live the way they live. He doesn't say that. He says, consider their faith or imitate their faith. Why? Well, because you and I know. You can copy somebody's behavior. You can do the actions, and it's totally phony. I mean, that's the whole meaning of hypocrisy, right? You do the right things. You, uh, you claim certain things. Maybe you sing worship songs. Maybe quote scripture, but you don't really believe it. Your heart's not in it. It's these leaders' faith you need to imitate. That is to believe what they believed. Or, much more accurately, to believe whom they believed. To believe whom they believed. That's why the very next verse talks about Jesus by name. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The faith we need to imitate is faith in a person, to trust Jesus the way they trusted Jesus. Make sure you get this. If you want to consider true Christianity, you've got to get this. The main thing in being a Christian is not doing certain actions. It's not believing certain doctrines, certain teachings. The main thing is believing in a certain person. Knowing Him. Trusting Him. Obeying Him. Loving Him. Living in relationship with Him. A few verses. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus said... Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. John seven thirty seven. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Let him come to me and drink. He's talking there of spiritual thirst. And spiritual satisfaction. John 1.12 To all who did receive Him, Christ, to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Do you see what these invitations are inviting us to? They're inviting us into a relationship of trust with a person. The person of Jesus. 
So that's claim two. Believing God's word will lead you to trust God's son. Claim number three. Jesus is always reliable. That is, he's always worthy of your trust because he never changes. Jesus is always reliable because he never changes. Okay, so you just read, hey, imitate the faith of those first leaders. Look at their example of life and imitate their faith. Well, why should you do that? Why should you imitate the faith of those who spoke the word of God to you? Because, verse 8, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Imitate their faith. Because the same Jesus who was with them will be with you. The same Jesus who saved them will save you. The same Jesus who kept his promises to them will keep his promises to you. If he never left them, he will never leave you. He is always faithful, always strong, always compassionate, always wise, always merciful, always patient, always all-knowing, always holy, always ready to forgive. It's such a staggering claim, isn't it? I like to point this out sometimes, you know, when, I, when I'm dealing with people, most of whom have heard the Bible, gotten kind of familiar with it, heard Christian teaching, heard sermon after sermon, and, and we read a claim like this, we kind of go, uh-huh. This is staggering. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever? You realize how outrageous that is if it's not true? And the only way it can be true is if Jesus fully shares the eternal nature of God, which is exactly what this book claims. Back to chapter 1 again, verse 3. The Son... The sun is the S O N. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. Think about how outrageous that is. Can you imagine? Think of the best person you know, the very, very best person you admire. They are just amazing. Would you ever go up to them and say, "You know what? You are the radiance of God's glory. You are the exact representation of his nature. In fact, you're just like him in every respect. And you uphold all things by your powerful word. Would you ever say that to anybody? That's what he's saying about Jesus. Chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God, relationship, through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. That's the claim. Jesus is always reliable because he never changes. Claim number four Jesus' death is the only solution to our unholiness, our lack of holiness. Jesus' death is the only solution. So, verse 12. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his blood. Okay, now what the author is doing here, you can kind of get lost, so let me try to unpack it. What he's doing is he's talking about Jesus' death 
as the fulfillment of the sin offerings of the Old Covenant. Okay, so the Old Covenant, the covenant that God entered into with the people of Israel through Moses there at Mount Sinai. We talked about that some last time. These sin offerings, okay, so there are all these different kinds of offerings you can read about in Leviticus and and, uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and so on. You read about these offerings, and some of the offerings were called sin offerings. And the sin offerings, especially the big sin offering, which was once a year called the Day of Atonement, Instead of those sacrificial bulls and goats being eaten after they were sacrificed, so you, you know, you'd take your, your animal there to the priest, and he would sacrifice it, and then he would take some to eat, he and his family, and give you the rest for you to take home and barbecue. So that's how most offerings were, but the sin offerings were not. The bodies of those animals were taken outside the camp, Okay, so picture, this is, you know, Israel in its first days is camped out there in the wilderness and the tabernacle's right in the middle and outside the camp the bodies were taken and burned. Why is that significant? Because inside the camp, the central thing was the tabernacle, that portable temple. That was the central place where God's holy presence was manifested And then surrounding him was all the people. And then outside the camp, that's unholy land. That's a vivid picture of unforgiveness. Being excluded from God's presence. Because God's presence is here, and all the people are surrounding it, and you're out. And so those animals' bodies... That picture was of those sacrifices taking the people's sin away outside the camp. But then we get to Jesus. And Jesus, in order to make us holy, purposely went to the unholy place. He went outside the gate. And he took our unholiness onto himself and died in our place. And when we put our trust in him, then his death counts as our death. And his life counts as our life. And his holiness counts as our holiness. His cross has become the final, ultimate altar where sin is fully atoned for once and for all. It's it's staggering. Hebrews 10.10 We have been, we believers in Jesus, we who have entered into relationship with Him, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's glorious. But do you have any idea how offensive that is to human pride? How offensive that is to human pride. If you think of yourself as basically a good person, you're going to have trouble with this. You really are. Because you're being told that not only are you not good enough for God, you're actually bad enough 
that the Son of God had to die an excruciating death in your place in order for you to receive His forgiveness, His pardon, His holiness, and then be right with God through no merit of your own, entirely because of what Jesus does for you. See, if you think you're a good person, that's, that's hard to swallow. If, on the other hand, you know, in your heart of hearts, you know that you fall far short of God's perfect goodness and that you do not deserve his acceptance. You do not deserve to be in his holy presence. You deserve only his judgment. If you know that, then the message of Christ willingly dying in your place for your sins in order to give you complete forgiveness of all of your wrongs, all of your wrong thoughts, all of your wrong deeds, all the things you should have done that you never did. And you can have that only as a free gift if you will just humble yourself and come to Him and receive it. Then that'll be the greatest news you've ever heard. Be the best news. And it's that news of grace. That's grace, right? God's undeserved acceptance and pardon and favor. It's that news of grace that strengthens a heart. Claim number five. Allegiance to Jesus will make you a misfit. Allegiance to Jesus will make you a misfit. Let there be no misunderstanding about that. And this is becoming more and more true each day. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. So Jesus was crucified, and crucifixion, if you don't know, was intentionally designed by the Roman government to be very slow and very shameful. Because they wanted people to look at somebody crucified and say, well, I'm never doing anything that would get me there, because that's the worst. Reserved for the very worst criminals who would be nailed naked to a cross next to a busy road so that people could watch them writhe in agony for hours. So this claim that the sinless, majestic Son of God willingly died, willingly died such a shameful death as that for undeserving sinners... I mean, calling that hard to believe is an understatement. But that's what this book teaches. Chapter 12, verse 2. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God, the right hand of the throne of God. The place of ultimate honor. He got to the place of ultimate honor by going to the place of ultimate shame for us. And here's the thing. When you pledge your allegiance to him, you are risking serious shame and serious disapproval from those who do not approve of Jesus in his ways. 
To align your life with Jesus will put you at odds with what this world teaches about so many things. Your own people may reject you. Your own family may reject you. But you will be in very good company. Acts 5, verse 40, the council, the Sanhedrin, called the apostles in and had them flogged, beat the tar out of them. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Why? Because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. We have a choice to make. Whose approval do we really want? Do we want the short-term, never-lasting approval of people in this world that's passing away? Or do we want the eternal approval of God in his eternal city that's coming? Claim number six. Through Jesus... Worship becomes a way of life. So verse 15, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess His name, and do not forget to do good and share with others for such sacrifices God is pleased. What's this saying? It's saying that now that Jesus has come, genuine worship no longer involves a temple or an altar or animal sacrifices, or eating certain foods and not others. And the Jewish people this was first written to were struggling with this. You can imagine how difficult this is. Well, maybe you can't, but I mean, that's their whole life up to this point. And now they're being told that because of Jesus, everything's changed. And they were likely being told by their countrymen who did not accept Jesus that look, you guys, you're walking away from the temple, you're walking away from the priests, you're walking away from the sacrifices, you're walking away from the holy foods. You guys are cutting yourself off from the very presence of God. You're cutting yourself off from God's approval. And Hebrews says, no, that's not true. Jesus has fulfilled all of those symbols and all of those rituals that were meant to point to Him and His perfect priesthood and His perfect once for all sacrifice for sin. We are sustained, we are nourished by His grace, not by religious ceremonies. True worship is now, catch this, it's through Jesus. And it's only through Jesus. Through Him, God wants us to present a different kind of of sacrifice, a different kind of offering, a lifestyle of praising Jesus with our lips and doing good, generous things that he commands with our hands. Now, praising Jesus with your lips, what is that? It is not simply going, praise Jesus, praise Jesus, praise Jesus. That's not it. Okay, that's fine. I'm not speaking against that. Praise, the biblical concept of praise is telling others about the greatness of Jesus. That's biblical praise. 
Notice it says the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, the name of Jesus, doing exactly what, you know, your countrymen are telling you not to do. Quit talking about Jesus. No, sorry, can't do that. I got to tell you how great he is. And so that means not only when we gather like this, but also when we're out there in real life land, we are to tell of his goodness as we talk to other people. We're to bring Jesus into our conversations because he deserves our praise and because it pleases God. And then we need to back up what our lips are doing with good, generous works. So there you go. There's the six crucial Christian claims. Now, if the Christianity you're engaged with, involved in, or considering, thinking about whatever fits, if the Christianity you're looking at does not conclude, include, include at least these six things, namely, the conviction that God has spoken, that believing what God has said will lead you to trust God's Son, that Jesus is always worthy of your trust because he never changes, that allegiance to him, no, that his death is the only solution to your holiness, his, your only solution, your lack of holiness, that allegiance to him will put you out of sync with this world, and that truly knowing him will move you toward a lifestyle of worship and doing good. If the Christianity you're considering does not include at least those six things, then that Christianity is not the real thing. If you would like to talk about any of these claims, I would love to have that conversation. You can just write a note on your Connect card, send me an email. You could talk to Tyler, you could talk to Cindy, you could talk to the person you came with probably. Love to talk about these claims if you have any questions about them. Just make sure you're dealing with the real thing. That's the plea. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, thank you for speaking. You have spoken and you have told us who your Son is and you have offered us eternal life in his name. And Father, I pray for anybody here who has yet to say yes to Jesus, that today might be the day where they do, or at least they determine to take another step and get answers. And Lord, if there's anyone here who's been seriously considering walking away, I pray, Father, you would turn their heart back to Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you for such a great Savior and Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.